It's the reason why I wish we had talked about this a couple weeks earlier, because one of the influences for this is Cowboy Bebop, which I wish we had talked about when we were talking about the live action show, because Rip when you look at, hey, don't you go into that. When you look <laughs> at the parallels between like, everyone and welcome to Plot Devices, the film and TV podcast hosted by three film critics who are occasionally in the same building. We're not today. I don't know what I'm talking about. We've never been in the same place. Hopefully one day. My name is Brandon King. I'm one of your hosts for today. Joining me across the podcast verse is my co-host for today, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing today? I'm happy to be living on the west side of Phoenix. We are talking all things west side once we get to the movie part. How are you? I'm all right. And good transition leading to our main topic for today. Also joining us from across the podcast for Samantha and Corvaya, Sam. Where are you coming to us from? You don't need to say. You know, it's a big old secret. It really is. <laughs> Maybe it's behind the scenes in some dark curtain like Oz. I don't know. Either way, happy to be here. And I am also admiring Noah's uh, earrings for those who can't see. They are really cool um, thunderbolts. So I actually yeah. didn't even notice. For Lightning ones. bolts. Why did I say thunderbolt? You get the picture. <laughs> got a real uh, got a real lightning queen in the house tonight. Good job. Um, good job. But you know where none of us are coming from? Uh, that being Green Hill Zone, which is not a real place. I'd be shocked if any of us were. But in that case, I'm sure as many of you heard, Sonic the Hedgehog is apparently a good movie. Uh, Sam and I have seen it. We've both enjoyed it. it. Sam's review is on uh, ACO Odyssey. Go check it out over there. And we're getting a sequel next year. And we got our first look at the Game Awards uh, from this past week. First trailer released online. All of us are ecstatic about it to a degree. Uh, the film will find Sonic once again voiced by Ben Schwartz, who is enjoying his vacation in the Green Hills area of our world when Jim Carrey's Dr. Robotnik returns from exile to find the mysterious Master Emerald. Uh, of course, based on the Chaos Emeralds in the game. Noteworthy in the trailer are the inclusions of Tails, once again voiced by Colleen O'Shaughnessy, reprising her role from the video games of the last few years, and Knuckles the Echidna, voiced by none other than Idris Elba, who lied to us. He said his voice wasn't going to be sexy, and it is. Uh, James Marsden, Tika Sumter, Neil McDonough, and Lee Majdub uh, reprised their roles from the first movie as well, which, taking into account COVID-affected box offices, became the sixth highest grossing movie of 2020, with $319 million at the box office. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is set for theatrical release on April 8th, 2022. Noah, I want to go over to you first because you appear to be the odd person out of this. You did not see Sonic the Hedgehog. And so I'm wondering, just based on your reactions for the trailer and the hype around it, what have your thoughts been? You two are the hype around it for me uh, because, yeah, everybody was part of that whirlwind of social dilemma and uh, fixes that happened with the first Sonic the Hedgehog movie. And I guess I just never, you know, put it on my calendar to go check it out. But you two really have been the voice behind like, you know, the heart of this movie and how how strongly it delivers and how excited you are for the sequel that, yeah, you know, I'm kind of ready for it too. Um, I'm happy that it's not following the trend of like, you know, this is a sequel that just calls itself number two, which we haven't seen in a while. So it's got that going for it. But other than that, I mean, Jim Carrey just looks like he's having a grand old time in that role. And you two can probably attest to that. But, um, you know, I'm on board. I'm on board, but you two probably have more specific things you're looking out for. I mean, I know that Tails is going to be in it, and that's a new character for me. Uh, is that exciting for you both to see new characters from the Sonic world in the movies? For me, yes, because it's like in the last movie, it, honestly, it surprised me. I did go in with the lowest possible expectations because may I reference back to the very first trailer we ever got of Sonic and he looked very scary. Uh, so, oh, you mean you know, Sonic the Nightmare? Yes, Sonic the Nightmare, which I also think was a publicity stunt, but that's none of my business and that's just a theory. Um, but no, anyways, it's like 
I, I went in with the lowest expectations and then it turned out that I had a blast. I thought it was absolutely fun. I thought that Jim Carrey was like the best part of the movie. And then for those who don't know, it shouldn't be a spoiler at this point, but spoiler if you haven't seen the end credits scene there, but Tails shows up and that made me happy because it's like this entire time you're wondering where all of his friends are and um tales of course is like his his sidekick everybody loves him and so i am excited to see more of our friends from like green hill zone and like from that sonic world uh come to the second movie and especially because my gripe about like some video game movies lately like whether it's sonic or pokemon um detective pikachu um I'm kind of I'm kind of tired of seeing like you know these video game characters come to our world, come to the real world. I want to see more of their world and how creators kind of adapt that perspective because you know it's like I, I know what my world looks like. It's all right, and, and so then I'd, I'd like to see more of how they would adapt like other locations for Sonic. But anyways, you know I'm just excited. I think this trailer looks cool because it does look like we're going to explore more places. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited to see what we'll do with this. And Brandon's absolutely right. They they lied to us. Idris Elba lied to us, and his I, I think he doesn't realize that his voice is just always sexy no matter what he's trying to do and so he uh knuckles sounds um sounds like fun but anyways <laughs> brandon what's your take on it this trailer looks fun because again i think a lot of us had that same reaction with the first sonic movie of like yeah this is cool but you can't possibly do it again because we all had again the lowest of expectations going in it was my biggest pleasant surprise movie of 2020 i stand by that it's better than it has any right to be it's more consistent than it has any right to be I should also add Jeff Fowler, the director of that movie, is coming back for this one, too, and I love having the consistency in there. Uh, but you're right. For fans, this is what I think we've wanted to see for a long time. It's Sonic and his friends with Warp, you know, cartoony, but also kind of realistic-looking landscapes up against, you know, Jim Carrey, who, again, is having the time of his freaking life in this kind of renaissance of his own career, so to speak, with the, with the robotic role. I'm excited to see what that can bring. Maybe if there's going to be, you know, another surprise in here like Shadow or, you know, something along the lines of that. Um, but no, it's just like a story point. Like, I like the idea of Sonic coming from the first movie where we very much see him as this young, naive kid and going into this movie about, you know, the, the kind of, you know, Ghost in the Shell and the Batman illusions of like, I have to protect, you know, the world now. And it's no, no, you're like a kid who likes chili dogs, like relax. And I hope that that is explored a bit more. And I think this will do that. Moving on from there to our second main topic of today. Uh, if you guys are tuning in through our, our you know, social media feeds for the week, it's going to be a lot of Spider-Man stuff. And this is only the beginning. But this is not No Way Home news. Oh, no. This is something that we, I don't think, we're expecting for a while, at least. Uh, but we're all, I think, very happy to see it very soon. Spider-Verse 2 is happening. And boy, oh, boy, is it happening. The first sneak peek at the sequel to 2018, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, released online this past week. Confirming the title as not only Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, part one. So we're getting at least the second movie. And we did read some interviews afterwards with uh, Thor and Chris Miller. Apparently the second film is concurrently in development with this project as well. The trailer reveals a time jump for the end of the first film with Shamik Moore's Miles Morales and Haley Steinfeld's Gwen Stacy set to journey across the multiverse once more on web-slinging adventures and nonsense as well as encountering the mysterious Miguel O'Hara, a.k.a. Spider-Man 2099, voiced by Oscar Isaac. Spoiler, if you didn't see the first movie, he popped him in the post credit scene as well. It's cool. Jake Johnson also reprises his role as Peter B. Parker, and Issa Rae will join the cast as Jessica Drew, a.k.a. Spider-Woman. 
directing the project and the eventual part two as well will be the trio of Avatar The Last Airbender's Joaquin Dos Santos, Souls Kent Powers, and Star Wars The Clone Wars' Justin K. Thompson, with a script by both executive producers Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are back for this film as well, and Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings' writer David Callahan. Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 is set to hit theaters on October 7th, 2022, so a little under a year from now. Uh, Sam, I want to go over to you. What were you expecting from a first look for Spider-Verse 2, and did this first sneak peek live up to your expectations? I had no idea what to expect, you know, because, <laughs> because again, it's it's a, another one of those movies that kind of caught me by surprise. I, I don't know what I was expecting when I first went to go see Spider-Verse, but I, when I went, I absolutely adored it, and I think, you know, it has all all sorts of good reasons why it lives up to the hype you know i mean it's a beautiful animation really great story the characters were really likable and it brings in a whole bunch of other different versions of spider men or spider people whatever you want to call them spider pig everything (laughs) all sorts of different spider versions into one movie and i think it was a really cool way to incorporate you know like nods to comics and and such so i don't i don't know what to expect because you know, I keep mentioning the same thing over and over again. I don't know much about comics, so I'm just excited to see what else we will get from different Spider-Men across the different universes. And so I, I'm excited. And even after rattling off all these different names and people who are collaborating on this project, I'm just really excited about it. All really great creators. So, and, you know, it's sure to be a really fun time. I'm just hoping it lives up to the hype, especially because it's seemingly enough. They have enough content to do a part one and a two. So I just hope it's not like overly stretched out. You know what I mean? Like, I hope it really keeps its focus on the plot and it, it does it well. Sam, I know you are a PlayStation player. Have you played the new Spider-Man game, Miles Morales? I haven't yet. It's terrible. It's staring at me on my <laughs> shelf, <laughs> but it's like, oh. I, I haven't yet. I, I have such a giant backlog, which is a whole other podcast in itself, but <laughs> have you? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I know that, um, the first one was so amazing and the second one recently dropped. Uh, and I say recently, like within the last year, but, um, just being another gamer, I kind of wanted to figure that out. But, um, disregarding the, the teaser that we were given, let's talk about the social conversation. Like a lot of people were like highlighting the fact that, oh my gosh, they're showing Miles Morales and Gwen like aged up. And I saw so many posts about that. And I was just like, yeah, guys, like this is like, it's it's great that this is happening. Like we're getting a continuation of the story and the continuity even comes down to like the way their characters are designed. So that was great to see. And I was happy to see all the socials freak out about that along with the 2099 version of Spider-Man voiced by Oscar Isaac is Spider-Man 2099 going to have that same mental relationship with Miles, the same that we saw in Into the Spider-Verse, or is he going to be more of like a looming threat that's kind of just chasing Miles because we don't know what to get. The teaser shows him, Miles Morales being outright attacked when he's transported through the multiverse and uh, this, this future Spider-Man, um, you know, just throws full punches at him. So I, I'm interested in what that relationship is going to look like along with uh, Issa Rae's Spider-Woman. That's going to be so great. I can't wait to see how they include her. Uh, Brandon, what did you take away from that? My immediate reaction was, ah! <laughs> appropriate yes and then my reaction afterwards was oh my god uh like the fact that spider-verse was as good as it was with as many cooks in the kitchen as it has under sony who up till that point again i had you know i was not a huge fan of venom i still had you know these spider-man 2 in the back of my head and i still don't think sony is necessarily the best team in place to deal with spider-man and then we got this 
And it's just so phenomenal and so well-crafted. And again, the emotion, the stakes, the animation is stunning. And again, talking about the first film that beat the Disney Pixar monolith for best animated feature in maybe a decade. I, I'm getting my numbers wrong, but it was some ungodly period of time for that. Uh, I, no, I'm with you on that because we don't see Spider-Woman in the trailer. And I'm very curious to see how they handle Jessica Drew as a character who in the comics is very convoluted. Uh, I'm very curious to see what they do with her in that. Uh, I love seeing more Miguel in there. One of my favorite movie members of all time is seeing my friend react to the post credit scene and seeing Miguel in there. And I just want to see where they go with him at that. But overall, it's, you know, beyond the multiverse antics and beyond the animation, all the spectacle of it. I just love that we are getting people like Kemp Powers, like David Callahan, like Daniel Pemberton coming back to the score who loved this universe and want to develop it more. And characters like Miles and Gwen who are just adorable. And I want to see what they do with them romantically. I really want them to be a thing. So, and of course, the biggest thing, of course, part one at the end, which means they have enough confidence to be like, we're not just doing one of these. We're going to keep expecting, because we've been hearing Spider-Verse rumors for the past at least year and a half. And I just kept wondering, like, what is going on behind Sony's closed doors? And well, now we have an idea of it. So I can't wait for this. This is a complete pleasant surprise. I can't wait for October. Yeah, I know. I'm same here, Brandon. And, you know, for what it's worth, too, I just didn't want to interrupt you. But um, yeah, it's it's about like seven years between um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse winning Best Picture uh, or not Best Picture, excuse me, Best Animated Film. And then uh, the last time it was not a Disney movie was Rango. So Rango, that was 2011. You. Yeah. So that was um, just a seven year difference. So it's close enough. You're, you round it up. You know your stuff. <laughs> I, I know math. Yeah. <laughs> so you're all good. All the across the Spider-Verse news really pushed No Way Home. Like, okay, we're done talking about No Way Home. It's back to Miles' story. Like, nobody had a problem just shifting focus there. And it's because No Way Home's going to be brought to us in a week. The amount of meme posts I saw of like, well, no more No Way Home. And I was like, haha, but actually, though. And then the counter is always, well, we already know half the movie anyways through leaks. And I'm like, calm down, everyone. <laughs> Point is, it is Spider-Man mania, and I'm here for it. I know we all are. Like, we're all big Spider-Man fans. Oh, yeah. Between Which... this... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was going to say, between this, No Way Home, the recent DLC for the Avengers games, the Miles Morales game, all the animation stuff, it's a good time to be a Spider-Man fan. Dude, for, even Fortnite. I'm not a big Fortnite, Fortnite player this, these days, but yeah, I know the entire TakeOver event, I think, has Spider-Man as some of the skins that are unlocked. Who knows who's listening and paying attention to this part, but any of our Fortnite fans, my little brother, Emiliano, I know you're listening. Yeah, the marketing's been insane for them, so it's like, you know what, good for them. They, they know uh, where they need to tap into the audiences here. <laughs> but, you know, I, the only thing I was going to say is this really transitions well even into our next topic, too, because, yes, if you haven't heard enough about Spider-Man, a.k.a. Tom Holland, this current Spider-Man, there is another news point here for you. Brandon, take it away. Multiverse is vast, as does the Hollandverse. And uh, in Tom Holland's resume of career, you know, defining roles, I should say, this could be one, uh, at least if you believe the hype on it. Uh, in a recent interview with the Associated Press regarding the whole Spider-Man Away Home press junket, Tom Holland revealed that one of his next projects is going to be playing Fred Astaire in an upcoming biopic for Sony. Uh, this is his quote from uh, Holland's interview from AP. The script came in a week ago. I haven't read it yet. They haven't sent it to me yet. But yes, I will play Fred Astaire, end quote. Uh, Fred Astaire's acting career, for those of you not in the know, and I'll admit I'm not an expert on this. I might take a story to my co-host. Uh, Fred Astaire was one of the acting giants of the 20s and 30s. He span his career spanned over 70 years, but he is also credited as one of the greatest dancers of all time. He appeared in over 40 musicals on film and Broadway West End stages, 
notably his partnership with Ginger Rogers on films like The Gay Divorcee and Top Hat. Uh, though it's not confirmed, it is worth noting that Astaire has never been portrayed on screen before, allegedly due to a clause in his will saying he should he shall not be portrayed on screen and that his likeness can't be referenced. Uh, there's been a whole thing with his estate, and I'll, I might go into that, but needless to say, that is an important thing to note. Uh, no director or release date for the project has been set. Amy Pascal, who is one of the big heads over at Sony, who Tom Holland has had a good relationship with on the Spider-Man movies, she will be producing the project, but no other info is known beyond that just it's happening. And Tom Holland's going to be playing him. So, Sam, over to you. Uh, is this a good choice, just beyond Tom Holland's, you know, infamous lip-sync performance? <laughs> no, I absolutely think it's a really good choice. I mean, a lot of people might not know this, but Tom Holland did like his career, I think launched when he was in Billy Elliot, the musical. So he does have that dancing experience. And I, I honestly think that this will be a lot of fun. And in my opinion, I think he could kind of look like him depending on, you know, what they might do with makeup and, and such, but you know, he, he's kind of built the same way. And so I think that this is going to be really fun. At least I'm hoping. And so, uh, especially with Fred Astaire, I mean, he's, he's up there in my mind, uh, like, with Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly and like those same classic dancers from that time. And so, you know, I don't know what they're possibly going to do because we are also still very early into this project announcement. Um, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to more information on it. It's something I'll definitely be following. So um, how about you, Noah? You're also our fellow musical friend here. Right. So I, I tapped into that fun fact uh, at some point when I was, you know, looking into Tom Holland's public history. What can I find out about the new Spider-Man? Um, and finding out that he was Billy Elliot or he was, yeah, he was the lead in Billy Elliot. Um, I know the years are what 2008 to 2010 are what I found. Um, what that means for him is just, Hey, he's a dancer and he's, he's held title roles where he's had to showcase those skills. So if now he can do that on film and all of these um, fans who know him from Spider-Man and see him, uh, see the acrobat, see all of the acrobatics there. Um, It'll be great to see what he can pull off, um, you know, outside of the Spidey suit. And if that means uh, delivering this, like, biopic performance, um, I think I'm ready for it. You know, I'm not too familiar with the uh, performer he's portraying, but um, that doesn't mean I'm not on board with this. You know, I'm a Tom Holland fan. Uh, if this is just an announcement, then it probably won't get here for some years. Uh, but we're going to be keeping busy with Tom Holland. He's got Uncharted. He's got, you know now this movie so uh clearly he's the name term he's going to be a name to um i'm saying remember but it's like nobody's forgetting him <laughs> he's going to be a uh hot topic uh in the next couple of years with these new projects so good for him right like he's not going away anytime soon we're gonna hear more from tom holland whether we all like it or not for sure <laughs> and actually as far as holland's upcoming projects you're right it is basically as of confirmed right now no way home and then uncharted so whatever's up next is kind of up to him i mean he's got the cloud around him and I know there's been the narrative like, oh, is Tom Holland like a good actor because of, you know, Chaos Walking and Cherry and like, no, he's he's a great actor. He absolutely is a good actor. I mean, come on. There's also the what was that movie when he was with Ewan McGregor? Uh, the The Impossible. Yeah, the, the Impossible. Yeah, he's amazing in The Impossible. And it's like, no, he can act. And beyond that, like, yeah, I mean, he's got stuff like, you know, Onward and like last year, like even a movie that I didn't like that much, Devil All the Time, I thought he was great in it. So I'm excited to see what he can do next as a performer. And again, the lip sync battles, Billy Elliot, he's got the dancing thing down. I don't think he doesn't not look like Fred Hestare. Like he's not the spinning image of the guy, but you could put some prosthetics on or like doll him up and he looks like Fred Hestare-ish. 
Yeah, I would say so. Cause yeah. Um, we'll kind of tease into it later with being the Ricardos. Like if you ask me, I feel like Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem do not look like Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, but that, doesn't mean anything like you don't have to look like the people you're portraying to be them you just have to kind of carry that essence about them so um yeah we'll see what happens like especially if they put them in prosthetics or not but uh yeah i completely get your point totally this is basically my roundabout playing of saying like i am woefully unfamiliar with fred astaire like i know some of his work i am just woefully unfamiliar with a lot of his ginger rogers partnerships and a lot of the legacy behind him and again it's it's one of the movies since i he's correct so and honestly, that's okay, because you know what? That just means that we're always out to learn something new about movies and media, so all good. <laughs> Life would be boring if we knew everything. <laughs> Except when I have to match wits with Samantha and Corvaya, who knows more than me. Oh, dear God, um, no. <laughs> but no, I, I think then we're good to go on to quick hits, right? Yes, let's go into our quick hits. It's the portion of the week. Uh, if you just want to get caught up on some quick news, we both take about a minute, sometimes more, sometimes less for various topics that may not extend to a full-blown discussion portion. Uh, Sam, do you mind going first? or? Yeah, absolutely. So then we will go ahead and get started in three, two, one. I just wanted to bring some attention to the HBO Max Harry Potter reunion teaser. Ah, so that was really cool when that dropped. I was super excited about it. And it was very magical. It was like, it was like getting a Hogwarts letter, but it's like inviting you back home and all the feels. I, I, my emotions were really high in that teaser. If you can, you couldn't tell already, um, but it's going to be really stacked. So it, it'll premiere on HBO Max at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Day, January 1st. So that, as it said in their description, but um, there are so many different people. Not only are we getting uh, like Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant and Emma Watson, the original trio, but we're getting so, so many other people, Any anybody from like Jason Isaacs to uh, Robbie Coltrane. And, and oh my gosh, it's so many of our memorable, lovable characters. So I'm just very hyped about that. And time for me with 10 seconds to spare. <laughs> I think all of us are looking forward in some capacity to see what the heck Harry Potter can be remembered as 20 years later. Oh, absolutely. Right. And I, it's like, especially after this point, now I've definitely extended the minute, but it's just, <laughs> even at this point, it's just like, what else could you talk about? Cause I feel like I've watched all the behind the scenes possible about it. So it's like, what else could they possibly talk about that fans haven't already known about? Uh, all the JK Rowling stuff. <clears throat> and anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyways, on to my quick hit. I will start in three, two, one. So I'm sure that this portrays to no one else except my own. Uh, we got the first trailer released for The King's Daughter. Now, this is a new movie coming out in January, which, of course, does not go too well. Uh, it stars Pierce Brosnan, uh, Kaya Solario, Ben Walker, and uh, Fen Bing, uh, Bing, uh, amongst other things. It tells the story of a French king who brings on a young girl into his palace who discovers that the king is housing a mermaid and fantastical things ensue. Here's why I want to bring this up, though. It's not because the movie looks good. It, it looks okay. It looks fine. Um, I want to bring it up for two reasons. One, because Kaiosco Delario and, um, oh God, Ben, what is his last name? I'm running out of time. Uh, ben Walker, they met on this. And the reason I say that is because this film was shot in 2014. This film is seven years old or eight years old by the time it will get released. It has been delayed time after time after time. And I've been following its news cycle for so long that I'm just curious as to what the heck this could possibly be. And I don't even know if it's going to be great, but I just like the fact that it's here and it's going to exist and time. 
Nice. <laughs> it's funny because I honestly didn't even know about the movie until I saw your uh, like saw your title on the budget. Can we talk about Pierce Brosnan's wig? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that's its own character. <laughs> I am going to start my quick hit with <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the last one that hit me. Okay, my minute's going. Okay, so. I'm going to talk about as much as I know about this new series. You heard me mention last week on the pod that I was playing the new Halo Infinite uh, beta on Xbox. And now the full version of the game is released. I started the campaign. It is a wonderful uh, reboot of the Halo franchise. I'm not sure whether to call it a reboot. But anyways, I am talking today about the Halo TV series. So the Halo series is going to center around a character called Master Chief. And he's part of the Spartan program. All you need to know, listeners, if you're not a fan of the video games, is that this is a new series coming to Paramount Plus that centers around a sci-fi galactic hero who goes around slaughtering aliens called brutes, slaughtering grunts, slaughtering you name it but he's a good guy okay we want to root for this guy i think like oh i don't know is it gonna be like mandalorian i don't know but we're gonna be fans of it because we are clearly fans of the game so thank you i don't know why i say thank you at the end of that but <laughs> that's my quick hit and because um, we're all interested in hearing it so of course you'd say thank you it's all good and as a tale oh, to fine. that quick hit is uh you can expect the series um in 2022 we don't have an official release date yet but paramount plus so hot take from someone who likes video games. I haven't really played Halo that much. I think I played like a couple times and, and I don't even know which version. I just played with a couple of friends like maybe like three years ago, but it was a lot of fun. I, I still need to explore more in Halo though, but like, I feel like Master Chief is so synonymous with video games. Like, you know, he's kind of like Mario and like Kratos like there are just some characters that define video games and Master Chief is one of them so it's kind of exciting to see him come to life in this way and I hope that's what it is I hope it's him coming to life I hope this set doesn't end up being a dud and then you know nobody pays it in mind but you know I at least have hopes for it because of the hype around Halo given the time you know Brandon All right, we're going to move on into into our new reviews for this week. Uh, ironically, it's not a ton this week, despite the fact we've been you know criticizing December's release schedule and for what it is, and we will still do that. That being said, this week uh, we have three new reviews for you guys, starting with Aaron Sorkin's latest, Being the Ricardos, or as you may have heard of the Nicole Kidman plays Lucille Ball movie. Sam has seen it. She's going to tell you about it. Uh, Sam, what's going on with Being the Ricardos? Thank you, Brandon. So with being the Ricardos, it is a biodrama that is um, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. So that should tell you all plenty at home. Uh, but anyways, I'm, sa- I'm saying that lovingly. So this film uh, basically follows the single week in which um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz experience this tumultuous time that really could have made or broke made or broken their careers that week and it was announced that lucille ball is a communist from all the headlines newspaper headlines are like oh lucille balls are the commie and this was the time when like mccarthyism was a thing and so um she was the latest victim to that time if you will so according to history yes it is true that lucille ball did register as a communist years ago um just because she had a previous family member who registered as communist so you know she really thought nothing of it um so that was like one problem that's addressed but then you know this the whole movie follows this entire week and it's from table read to filming this um episode uh, that they were filming for that week and so a lot happens in a week that's something that we already know right but for 
our script's sake, I feel like too much happens because we kind of see a little bit about um, Desi Arnaz's infidelity. We see a little bit about trying to showcase Lucille Ball's pregnancy on air because if anybody isn't familiar with Lucille Ball and you have been hiding under a rock, she is, she was a trailblazer for women in comedy at the time in the fifties. And especially to have like an interracial couple on air together to have a pregnancy shown on air to do reruns again on air. And everybody just loves, I love Lucy. That's just something that is still funny and holds true to this day. And so, yeah, the cast is probably the best part of this movie, honestly, because, you know, like Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem, I feel like for the most part, they do a pretty good job of representing Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. But there there are times where I feel like it kind of misses the mark. I feel like Nicole Kidman sounds the most like Lucille Ball when she is acting on I Love Lucy. She sounds so much like her but then behind the scenes she kind of sounds different and and i mean different from even like off-screen lucille ball so i I don't know it just it's just something different and i i do appreciate though you could tell that she put like her heart and soul into this role so that's something that you can see clearly on screen and she does have quite a few strong moments and even same with desi arnaz i i you know like and javier bardem's version of him and so there are quite a few moments where you could totally see him as Ricky on I Love Lucy. And there are other times, like he had a big Babalu scene, if anybody knows I Love Lucy, and he's like, you know, the musician and the club owner. Um, It didn't feel like Desi to me. Like that was, in my opinion, one of like the weaker moments of the show, but then his sense of humor was there. So I don't know, like it was kind of for me a mixed bag, but then I really want to give a shout out to J.K. Simmons and Nina Arianda, who played Vivian Vance and William Frawley, uh, Fred and Ethel Mertz uh, on Isle of Lucy. And so I thought they did such a great job of embodying their two um, real life counterparts. And it was just really a joy to see them be like um, Lucy's rival in a way specifically for for vivian vance and nina ariana slash nina arianda um but i thought that you know they had a really cool moment where it was almost like a rivalry but you could tell that they were good friends always looking out for each other uh and then for jk simmons's version of william to be kind of like this father figure this very gruff fatherly figure for lucille ball so you know overall the cast did a really good job but it's just it's not the movie for someone who loves I love Lucy and goes into it thinking it's going to be this happy film about their, their TV show. It's, it's very political and, and it could be, you know, divisive for some, but it's definitely like an Aaron Sorkin movie through and through. Um, But yeah, there were times when I thought that, you know, for plot wise, it kind of lost its focus. They actually had interviews from people who knew Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz in real life, like the producers and writers. Um, So there were moments where the movie was kind of sprinkled with interviews too. So it's like, is it a documentary? Is it a biodrama? Like for me, it kind of lost some of its focus in the middle. Is it too safe though? Because this is Aaron Sorkin we're talking about who likes to be big and showy and very kind of grand cliche with his writing. Does it feel like that at all or? Oh yeah. There are moments when it feels cliche to me. There are absolutely moments. I would say it's a, a soft, like a softer version of him because like i mean let's take newsroom for example i mean (laughs) like he jeff daniels character is very robust very loud very no nonsense i'm gonna tell it like it is and so i feel like 
Lucille Ball, um, like, like, um, excuse me, Nicole Kidman's version of Lucille Ball is kind of like that. Uh, there are times when people are just like, wow, she's just a woman that's just trying to step on us, which is honestly probably how the writers and executives felt back then when she wanted her show to be a certain way, when she wanted a scene to go a certain way, then she called them out on their BS and was like, I think it should be this way. Um, so in a way, she she was embodying that typical character that is seen from other Aaron Sorkin movies where it's always this no-nonsense character. I'm going to stick it to them and, and tell them how I feel. So I feel like you could still see Aaron Sorkin's fingerprints all over this film, even though if it, it might have been one of the more subtle versions for him. You know, overall, I really appreciated the movie. I'd probably, I, I believe my review, I gave it like a like a six, which doesn't sound great, but it's like, Honestly, I, I mean, I think it's still worth seeing if you're at least a fan of these two, just to see Aaron Sorkin's um, interpretation of their Rocky relationship. And so with that, I think we'll go on to the next movie. So thanks for letting me go on about being the Ricardos. I have a lot more to say about it, but you could always feel free to message me, anyone who's listening, and, and to talk about it. But with that, we will go on to Encounter next. Yeah, so I actually, I'm really excited to talk about this. I saw this about a week and a half ago, and I've actually been Anxious to talk about it. Now with the reviews out, I'm even more anxious. Uh, this is the newest project from Michael Pierce, who I'm a bit, I'm not super familiar with his work. Uh, it's from Amazon. It dropped limited theatrically last week. It's on Amazon uh, Prime this week. It stars Riz Ahmed as a man named Malik. Uh, he was a Marine staff sergeant who got dishonorably discharged. There's a lot of stuff regarding his past, along with his relationship with his ex-wife, uh, played by Janina Gavankar, who I love. Um, and we start the film... With a simple premise, Malik is, you know, this former Marine, and he believes that he is the head of this conspiracy. And this conspiracy is that aliens, like the size of parasites, have essentially taken over a large chunk of the populace, and he has to go on the run with his sons. Jay, played by uh, Lucian River Shauhan, is his oldest. Uh, Aditya Gedada plays Bobby, who is the youngest. He essentially has to take his sons on the run to this compound in Las Vegas to visit the scientists who are seemingly making a cure for this parasitic invasion. Uh, and we're sort of left to believe as the film goes on of like how much of this is true. Like how much is Malik, you know, letting his sons on? How much is he believing? You know, is there past things in his life that are enforcing this? Is there even an alien threat at all? Or is there another threat that's looming in the wings? I noticed when the reviews came out that it's been getting pretty mixed thoughts. And I think the biggest flaw does come in some of the writing, some of the dialogue choices. I don't think quite hit as much as they do uh that being said i'm kind of excited because this is the first film in a long time that i've seen where i vehemently disagree with the critics this movie is awesome um and i was shocked at how much i like this because i think the way it redeems it for me is that i think the family dynamic portion of it is so gosh darn strong that i think it it surpasses everything else like riz ahmed who, you know, we just saw earlier this year in Sound of Metal. He's not as good as Sound of Metal in this, but he's still really good in this. He proves to you why he's one of the most fascinating actors to work with today. Um, the physicality of the role he really gets into, there's a lot of kind of, uh, like, sci-fi B-movie tropes into this. Like, they'll randomly pan over to, like, you know, a person who might be infected, or, like, they'll go to, like, a skin graph, and you'll see, like, insect-like eyes, and you'll wonder, oh, what's this all about? It's, it's all these little pieces of, you think, the story... But it's very much the story from what Malik is looking at. And we very much explore the film through Malik's uh, eyes. And that's a big thing about the movie is like eyes being the truth to, you know, the emotional state of the characters. I want to talk about Lucian River Chauhan for a minute, who plays the older son, Jay. Holy crap. 
uh, who is this guy and why are we talking about him? He's tremendous. The younger kid, uh, I should say, the younger kid who plays Bobby, my my theater was losing their minds at him. Like he's probably the funniest character in the movie. He has a lot of bit of like levity. He's like, he's a four-year-old kid who like, you know, when his dad says he can have ice cream for dinner, he's like, yay, this is the best time ever. And the older son is like, yeah, but what's like our dad doing with a gun? Like it's that kind of dynamics of the whole thing. So, but what Lucia River Chalhan does in this is amazing because he has to play against Riz Ahmed, who is clearly going through a lot as a character and he's matching it. There's this level of emotional love to the character that I found absolutely fantastic. And the fact that we're not talking about him more is ridiculous to me. I really hope he gets more roles in response to this. But again, like to me, the biggest thing in the movie is that, yes, there is a shift that happens in the middle. And yes, that shift does very much feel like it's going to be a different movie. But to me, as someone who got attached to the family dynamics so much and was really appreciative of what Michael Pierce as a director could bring to some of the tropes and the aesthetics of the movie, whether it's a sci-fi movie, whether it's a road trip movie, whether this, there's a kind of military aspect to it, I was enthralled by it. I was really, really impressed by this. I'm so glad to hear that, Brandon, because I mean, Riz Ahmed, I feel like not enough people are paying attention to him. It's like, yeah, we, you know, he got some nods and, you know, award season for Sound of Metal, but like, I feel like it wasn't enough to really understand how good of an actor he is for like an average moviegoer, you know? And you know what? It's not his fault because there was the whole thing of like Chadwick deserved to win, but Anthony Hopkins won for lead actor. So Riz Ahmed, who was just as good in his movie, got completely shafted because everyone was focusing on that debate. And because of that, his, you know, breakout, so to speak, was kind of delayed. Just so our listeners are aware, I started this movie too. It's available on Amazon Prime Video and I wanted to engage in conversation with Brandon about it on the pod. Um, and as I was watching it, you know, I haven't completed it yet. So we will have a conversation off the air when we can talk about, uh, you know, those those uh, finale reactions. But I wanted to know from you, this is giving me the impression that it's going to play with the idea that, you know, he is, Riz Ahmed's character is lo- almost, in my eyes as a viewer, he's losing himself to a conspiracy that, or losing himself to a belief that almost comes off as a conspiracy to his kids. How long do they, do you feel that that is used in the film? Is that kind of this, what's stretched across until, you know, a big reveal is made or, you know, what can you share about that topic? That's kind of the thing that I love about the movie is that as a movie as a whole, there's a very clear stance that it takes about halfway, maybe two thirds of the way through uh, where you're very much like, oh, this is clearly where the film is going. And yet if you are viewing it through Malik's character's eyes, you kind of still can't tell because the movie kind of plays with these characters that it brings up who come back to, you know, in the second half of the movie. And it still kind of plays with the idea if you're viewing it through Malik's eyes of like, I have to believe that this is what is happening, but everything around me is telling it that this is not what this is. And that's what I kind of love about what Rizamid brings to the movie. And it's, again, it's, it's two very different things, but if you can buy into it, it's really fascinating. That makes it sound terrifying. So I'm looking forward to finishing it. Thank you, Brandon. And it is because like Malik is clearly, you know, he's clearly not in his right head. So you're, you're left with this kind of unreliable narrator situation, but it's also terrifying for his sons who you grow attached to. And you're like, I want the best for them like Malik does, but is he the best to give to them? So I don't know. I, I really appreciated it. Uh, if we're going ratings, it's a very solid eight for me. It might even go higher for that. Uh, it's not best of the year material for me, but it's probably it might be in contention for my biggest surprises of the year. Like, I just really think it is such a well-done sci-fi road trip thriller that I don't think is getting its due. I get it. It's, you know, not completely consistent, but when it is, it really is working. Again, it's a limited theatrical release right now. It's going to be on Amazon, I believe, this week. Uh, so check it out there if you have Amazon. If you can get out of theaters, check it out. Don't let this get swept under the rug in all the, you know, awards and Matrix and Spider-Man blockbuster. 
If you can get around to it, I would recommend it just saying. With that being said, we're going to turn over to our last and, you know, main event of this week that I'm sure all of you are wondering about because we've got two theater nerds and one who knows nothing about it. West Side Story, directed by the one and (laughs) true, uh, to an extent, directed by the one and only Steven Spielberg, written by his freaking collaborator, Tony Kushner, based on the work of, you know, Leonard Bernstein, the late Steven Sondheim, just passed away recently, rest in peace. Sam, uh, we, sorry, we've all seen this, by the way, so this is going to be a group review. Sam, over to you. I'm sure everyone knows West Side Story. Tell I was going to say, I was going to say, if, you, if you're living under a rock, I totally understand if you have not heard of West Side Story. But having said that, everyone's going through a new thing, and this is meant to introduce the story to a new generation. So I totally get it. Um, so this is an adaptation from a 1957 musical called West Side Story. Same name, same name, always has been, always will be. Um, and so it's... It's basically like Romeo and Juliet. You have star-crossed lovers between two different worlds. And so uh, the thing you need to know about West Side Story is it takes place in New York, and you have two different groups. This is, I'd say, like also within the 50s time frame. And so with these two different groups, you have the Jets and the Sharks. Both are male gangs that are basically trying to take control of the streets in New York, specifically the slum area, which is going through a lot of construction and and such. And jets are made up of primarily Caucasian males. Um, And then we also have the sharks, uh, which consist of all Puerto Rican immigrants. And they're always trying to, you know, fight each other, bite each other's heads off, try to like, you know, diss one another. It's, it's petty. And so, you have these two different groups that are always constantly fighting. And then you have this one person from the Jets who has gone through a, a major change because he almost had a very fatal mistake, but um, he did kind of pay for some time through like jail and um, juvie and things like that. But uh, this is Tony. Um, this is a character played by Ansel Elgord, our protagonist, if you will. And he's trying to right his wrongs and, and pick himself up. He's working for a store, a convenience store that is owned by uh, Rita Moreno's Valentina. And he doesn't want any part of the Jets anymore. He, and so when his friend uh, Riff, who is the current leader for the Jets, tries to convince him to come back. There's going to be a rumble. But then, first of all, there's a dance where we're going to plan this rumble. Um, it, Tony just doesn't want any part of it. And so, you know, he ends up going anyway. Spoiler alert for later. <laughs> the story is pretty much the same. It's always been. And so um, he meets Maria there and falls in love with her. It's just the problem is, is she is the Sharks leader's sister. uh, And that leader's name is Bernardo, who is played by David Alvarez. Um, And then also Maria is played by Rachel Zegler. So Star-Crossed Lovers, it's tales old as time. That was my very messy synopsis. And I would like to hear more from uh, both of you. West Side Story, I am so happy with all the musicals that I've been blessed with receiving this time of year. Um, this, I was just going to go out the gate and say my rating, but I'm like, I'm not going to spoil that yet. We'll spoil everything else. Um, let me tell you, out the gate, casting director knew what they were doing. Whenever we see Anita, Bernardo, Riff, of course, Maria on screen, I was just totally captured by the characters. I think that they were perfect for the roles that they portrayed. And when it came to their singing, even more so, I found myself, you know, these are popular songs for me because, you know, uh, I was a fan of the musical production growing up, uh, got the opportunity to play Chino uh, 
here in a local theater. So I was like, oh, I can't wait to see Chino on screen. So that was like me being a fanboy in the background of my, of my screening. And I didn't leave, I didn't leave displeased. You know, we could, we could cover so much on this group review, but I think uh, the, the big things that I want to point out is that every musical number is like the main show. And that for me just delivered the energy, you know, throughout the long runtime. It is a two and a half hour movie, but it's just, it, it has that, that epic level. So, and every scene is treated like that. So I found that to be really enthralling with it, you know, uh, but I think the highlight for me for this movie is that dance at the school because their choreography, their movements, everything is so fierce and fast that it just made me want to, I don't know, find out how to dance like them because it, it just looks like they had so much fun filming it. And it's a gorgeous film to watch. Uh, Brandon, what are some of your top level comments? Yeah, I'll admit I was, you know, not as enthusiastic going into this as you guys were, uh, just because I wasn't familiar with it. I did have the immense pleasure to watch the original 1961 film on the big screen for the 60th anniversary. Uh, and it gave me a lot of context going into this and a lot of kind of, you know, parallels and finding everything within. And you know what? I'll say this much. This is probably the most I've liked Steven Spielberg movie in years. Um, it is really good. And he, you can tell how much reverence Steven Spielberg has for this movie between the references, the choreography, the, you know, the, the, the notes he gives to, uh, to Janice Kaminsky as a cinematographer who, I, who, by the way, I actually like what he does with this. A, a few too, you know, white flashes for me, but I'll, you know, leave that for the nitpicks. So I was just curious to know, like, Ooh. why you thought it was, like, yeah. possibly distracting. I want to know too. It's not that Janice Kaczynski is a bad cinematographer. He's actually a great cinematographer. Like, I like what he does with visuals. I like what he does, again, especially in this. Like, I think there are creative uses of color and lighting to it. My issue going into it was just, like, Steven Spielberg has used Janice Kaczynski for the last, like, decade and a half, two decades almost. So all of his films have this very similar look to them. You know, like, The Post looks like this. Schindler's List looks like this. You know, War Horse looks like this. And I was worried that going into it, that Spielberg and Kaminsky weren't going to be able to develop like a unique identity to it, that it was just going to be bright flashes and muted colors because this is a Spielberg movie. It's one of those things where I was pleasantly surprised at like how much it fits, despite the fact that it is very clearly what they've been doing for the past two decades. Gotcha. Okay. Cause I was just curious from that perspective, I'm like, what would make one super sus of the cinematography from the beginning and, and like distracting. Cause I was just like, Oh, I don't know what that means for, for, for a perspective wise, but, um, but no, Oh my God, no. If you get the chance, watch all those movies. Okay. <laughs> I know I that's all, all more to add to the, to the ever growing watch list, but no, I, mean, I war horse, I actually think is very underrated like people should see it i think it's amazing and no. not enough people talked about it when it came out but um no I, I i you know it's also another comment from before when you mentioned um oh gosh like it, it's your favorite thing he's done in like a decade I, yeah i completely agree one of my one of my friends also mentioned that he thinks it's the best movie that steven spielberg has directed in the 21st century and i thought that was a really interesting hot take but i do like agree with it for the most part because i thought the post was great but i didn't love it same with bridge of spies i thought it was great mark rylance totally deserved the oscar uh didn't think that the, overall the story was that great lincoln i loved that was probably the last thing that i absolutely loved that he did um oh my and, gosh um the performances are awful well good and for the most part there's one exception uh rachel zegler is 
a star in the making. She's delightful in this. She's wonderful. She's adorable, but her singing voice is fantastic as well. Um, David Alvarez makes for a really good uh, Bernardo. Mike Feist, uh, he makes for a really good riff. Uh, frankly, I think he's the one who surpasses the original more. I didn't like the guy who played in the 61 version, but the star of this movie is Ariana DeBose by a mile. And that's not saying much because she has to, you know, surpass or match what Rita Moreno does in the original, who is also great in this, by the way. But what Ariana DeBose does in this is spectacular. She brings new depth and dimension and energy that Rita Moreno opened the doors for, and I think she really does wonders with this. And then there's Ansel Elgort, and we'll talk about the negatives, and I don't love him in this, but that's the one thing about that. Uh, I will just say, you know, overall, you know, getting over to um, uh, getting over to you guys, I genuinely appreciated this. I genuinely appreciate what it does and what its story is. Is it, you know, as good of a modern telling as West Side Story could be between, you know, racial politics and class politics and what we're talking about today? No, it has shortcomings in the writings, and I would get into those. But as pure joy and pure excitement and pure worship of the original that it is, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and honestly, I I, I would say that my take on West Side Story it's it's a bit more positive in a way, and and I think it's just because of how blown away I was when I first saw it. I feel like, especially with the cinematography, it feels like a kind of classic film that you don't always see filmed anymore. And you could kind of see Steven Spielberg's love letter to Steven Sondheim with this too, like you mentioned, the choreography, the music, and how he adapted that for his own movie. And so I I feel like you kind of felt it with the rest of the cast too, that they were just giving it their all, you know, for this tale that's so beloved over the years. And and for me, it was also Ariana DeBoss who was like the standout in this movie, but as well as Rachel Zegler, because I think that, you know, she she doesn't have a long track list just yet. This was her, if I'm not mistaken, her feature film debut, and we'll be seeing her in the next Shazam movie coming up. But uh, I just think that she was like the perfect Maria. I felt like she was able to kind of draw that, that that innocence out as well as this passionate love that her character has for the people around her. But she also is a little bit, more fiery than like the last Maria. Cause it's not like she was just kind of there as by circumstance and, you know, Oh, I'm here is like, you know, because I'm in love with the main character, but I mean, she does have a moment in the movie where she feels like she's had enough of the turf war and uh, you know, I'm not going to go into spoilers with it, but it's just that you could see she's had enough of it and actually lashes back out at it more, I think than the original movie did in the sixties. So um, to me, that was kind of refreshing to see. And I, I I will say the the only ding I had in this movie I didn't have as much of a problem with Ansel I totally get where people are coming from with his performance but for me I didn't have as much of a problem I thought he was totally fine I thought he was good as a Tony but um uh my one ding in the cast was actually for Iris Manus I think I that's how you pronounce their name but um if anybody knows any background on West Side Story, there is a trans character that's in the movie. And um, it wasn't confirmed in the past that this character is trans, but there were hints at it because there was even a cut song um, that was talking about like loving um, all sorts of different people and such. But uh, with this character, I just wish that they did a little bit more. Some Some more scenes that were like, not as melodramatic because for me, I felt like those scenes kind of took me out of the movie. It just felt like 
you know, there were times this character, anybody's is trying to be one of the guys and trying to hang out with them and try to, you know, just, just be part of this crew and want to feel this kind of sense of belonging that the rest of the jets feel. But I felt like their character was so, so awkward, like just kind of creeping around in the background, almost as if it was like the audience watching these protagonists the same way, but it's a character in the movie. And I don't know. I just felt like for a character who is representing a community, they could have done so much more. Like even having that character is simply just part of the Jets, no other explanations. I, I thought that would have been really meaningful, but I don't know. I just felt like it was kind of like a an ill use of a of an important character, if that makes sense. When looking at characters, uh, I want to point out a fun little fact about uh, Officer Krupke. So the actor's name is Brian D'R.C. James. And after reading that name, I'm realizing he has played the title role of Shrek in Shrek the Musical. And for anyone who hasn't listened to that soundtrack, go do yourself a favor. Uh, but that is awesome. We have stage talent returning to this adaptation of West Side Story. Yes, Rita Moreno is in it and she portrays uh, the partner of Doc. So the original character is like this uh, prescription store owner um, or like convenience store uh, whose name is Doc. But it, it was so nice that they just, you know, found that as a, as a quick change that they could do, which is bringing, bringing in this calendar, this calendar, this character, Valentina, who could be played by Rita Moreno. Um, a fix to the Jets team could have been made the same way. Uh, speaking of the Jets, Mike... Feist is how I'm going to say his name. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but oh my gosh, I was, my eyes glued to him whenever he was on the screen. I don't know like what it is about him, but the way that he was speaking, he really captured like that New York, that New York sound in his voice that I don't, that I didn't feel the same from the other characters who were on the Jets team. Uh, but he was just, he was a big highlight, you know, on, on the Jets. Uh, he was definitely someone to pay attention to. And this felt like for the most part, it felt like Anita's movie, like Anita, like you said, Brandon, like she, she dominated all the scenes that she was in. America is always going to be one of my favorite numbers and they do it, you know, they do it so well in this movie too. I didn't sound, I didn't find it lackluster. I found it, uh, I found it so much fun and I love all the colors that the sharks represent. Someone applauded in my audience after America. And to be real, America was always my favorite song that and tonight. <laughs> so um, yeah, America's scene was just so beautiful between the costume design and everything and the choreography. I was blown away by it. So, but yeah, like uh, just to your point about Mike, uh, I, I like that this movie actually had a couple of faces in here that were brand new. And I, I think that just also kind of adds to the movie where, where you have a lot of actors who might not be as well known as some of the others on the cast. And, and I think that's a really good chance, one, for those actors to get that screen time, but also two, you have a fresh take on those beloved characters and the story with these fresher faces. So, um, you know, I think that kind of is almost like a palate cleanser for some people who are already familiar with the story. And then it kind of is a cool way to adapt it into their own version for this new generation to experience. I want to expand slightly on the Rita Moreno thing. For one thing, she's great in it, and I'm, you know, happy she's in there. I think she provides a really good idea of leg of sort of legacy and generational racism. And that's kind of xenophobia brought into it because she is very much a viewpoint to Tony, who at that point is, you know, they're they're confidants of one another. And I think that is a way for the character to be like, no, like I went through this and I can see those same struggles happening with you. It doesn't, you know, rectify the other things that I think the movie doesn't really tackle, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, kind of, you know, Puerto Rican issues with the cops and everything like that. And that was happening at the time in the San Juan Hill district. 
But I think that character in particular and what she represents beyond just her being a good character, I think what she represents to uh, Maria and Tony's relationship, I think is kind of profound. And I don't think it's getting talked about as much. Right. Because originally, I mean, Doc is a he's a, a white character. So bringing in this character who's very influential to Tony's life and she is Puerto Rican, um, that should change more of the story or I guess change how we're looking at the story. So. It, it changes it changes how we see the people Tony interacts with who aren't the Jets. And I think that's a big deal. Let's dive right in. Okay. Y'all know me. I gave this a nine. I was expecting the 10 surpassing tick tick boom, but okay. <laughs> Wait for the 10. The 10's coming. Wait for January. Uh-oh. That sounds foreboding. No. <laughs> the suspense will kill me till then. Uh, I am going to stick with a solid eight for this. Uh, I do think it... I think it surpasses some of the things that I think the original doesn't quite match up to. Uh, again, that's coming just from me who doesn't have the glasses of nostalgia to it. But again, I understand the love for the story and the love for these characters that Steven Spielberg has. Again, there are things that I wish it handled differently. That I think you could have in a movie that is two and a half hours long, put a bit more nuance into it, put a bit more depth into characters that aren't Marie and Tony who are interesting, but they're not to the same degree. That being said, most of the cast not named Ansel were terrific in this. The songs are still as good as ever. The cinematography is not distracting at all. And it feels like an event. Like by the time the credits roll, you feel like you have watched an epic. I gave it a nine and a half for me. It's a near perfect movie. I absolutely loved it. So uh, I, yeah, I definitely recommend it for anybody, especially if you're a theater slash musical fan, you're, you're going to love this. And even if you're not a fan of those kinds of things, still see it. There are lots of things to love in this, at least from, from my perspective. So yeah, all good stuff. Overall, all three of us are, you know, really, we highly recommend the movie. So for sure, uh, check it out when you get the chance in theaters. So for our segment, we are returning to directorial debut. I'm so happy to be back here with my pod team talking about Ryan Johnson's. We are talking 2005 Brick. Brandon, talk to us about Brick. Yeah, so Directorial Debuts is finally back. It's been a minute, and actually there's a reason why I wish we had talked about this earlier, but we're getting to it now, and I'm actually really excited about this one. Because it's actually the only Ryan Johnson movie I hadn't seen, so it's filling a gap in my filmography as well. Brick uh, dropped in 2005. This is the first film of, of course, Ryan Johnson. If you are not familiar with his work, you're probably familiar with uh, Looper, starring Jessica Gordon-Levitt, a recurring name in this bit, uh, and Bruce Willis. Uh, you also might know him from Star Wars The Last Jedi. Very fascinating filmmaker, came out of USC, uh, basically scrambled together money from his family's construction business to fund this movie, uh, based on a lot of the works by uh, detective novelist uh, Deshiel Hemet. Uh, it stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, he plays Brendan Fry, uh, a kind of bit of an outcast, bit of a you know social disorderly kid. Uh, he's walking home from school one day, and then he discovers this note directing him to a payphone. He gets a call from his ex-girlfriend Emily, who is played by half the name. Uh, Emile de Raven, uh, she sounds panicked. And the next thing she hears after she hangs up is a Mustang driving by. And this sets basically sets off a whole chain of, you know, noir style detective antics. Uh, Brendan tries to find out what's been going on with Emily. They haven't talked in a while. He meets with a drug dealer known as The Pin, uh, played by Lucas Hawes. You've probably seen a bunch of other things. All while, you know, dealing with high school. And the frame, the film is very much framed as, you know, detective 40 style dialogue delivered by high school students which is kind of the gimmick of the whole thing uh sam i want to go over to you first uh what did you what were your thoughts on you know ryan johnson's filmography as a whole going into this and what did you think about brick for the weird experiment that it starts off his career as yeah so for me with ryan johnson uh this might be a hot take i guess depending on who you ask but the only project of his I ever really liked was Knives Out. I don't know why Looper. I, Looper for me, it just, I, I wasn't like a 
huge fan of it. And I don't have like a good reasoning for why, because it's also been years since I'd seen it. The first time I saw it was in theaters. And so that was also the last, but, um, you know, like, and even, especially with the last Jedi, I also have my thoughts on that. There was a lot going on with it. It is definitely not my favorite star Wars, but having said all that knives out was like my favorite project of his and by a long shot too. I thought it was amazing. So having said all that, I was really excited to see where his career started with brick. Um, and I was really happy to see that that was our directorial debut for the week. Um, so with brick, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's just because of that, like Neo, not Neo, but it's like kind of like that noir film style for this like mystery. I really enjoyed that. And especially it was fun to see something early of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's because I haven't seen him look this young in any movies I'd seen him in. I think the last time it was like the 500 days of summer. So thank you so much, Noah. <laughs> he's like mouthing and he's, he's amazing. So <laughs> yeah, so that was like the youngest I'd ever seen him in anything. And this was pleasant to see his talent so early on. Like you could see he's still a really consistently good actor in this movie as well as today. So, you know, that was something I absolutely enjoyed, but yeah, the story I found pretty engaging too. It left me wondering what happened to this girl, what's going on. And so it, it, it engaged me for the entire time. It, you know, it wasn't my favorite movie I'd ever seen, but it's also, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it overall. My takeaway from Brick is, well, also just, you know, cover of my history with Ryan Johnson. Of course, I love Knives Out. I had seen The Last Jedi and also um, reading his IMDb page. I'm just focusing on music videos today, guys. Um, we have the LCD sound system. Uh, they have a song called Oh Baby, which if you haven't heard it, please go do yourself a favor, listen to it. It's a pretty lengthy song, but it just, it has, it has so many, uh, I'm not a music guy, so I can't really describe, describe music so well, but it just, it pulls out my feels. He directed the music video and it's such a moving music video about two inventors who are trying to invent like a teleporting device. And so if that's intriguing enough for you to go check it out, yeah, it was directed by Ryan Johnson. So, uh, bringing it back to Brick. Uh, some familiar faces of today are like, yes, um, Emily De, De Raven and Megan Good, uh, the former is starring in the TV series Lost, which is how I grew familiarity with her. Um, and then Megan Good just across different projects. This is a movie that initially was just breezing over my head. I was, it was hard for me to really find like, the string to follow with this movie just because of the dialogue. Like the dialogue is very intense for what the setting is. And yes, these are all high school students, but it's because of what Brandon mentioned before, which is like, there's this complicated, you know, dialogue heavy script that is a detective story being applied to the archetypes or the archetypes that it includes are now being applied to high school students. And so you have people from the theater department, you have um, the drug movers in the high school, you have um, the nerd who is the brain of the operations behind behind um, the scenes with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, I was entertained. Once I think I, once I got that and I knew that that's what it was doing, then I was able to move with the story and go, oh, okay. Like now I know why we're visiting these different parties. It does involve, um, this isn't a spoiler, but when we start getting into like the amounts of, you know, cocaine that are being moved between the pin and how, um, how Brendan's ex is involved in all of it. That kind of got complicated for me. And I, you know, it was a little bit like, oh, I don't really know who's in charge of what, but I just know we're trying to figure out who killed his ex-girlfriend. And, um, there's little, there's little reveals that are, um, 
you know, scattered throughout the story, which I think do, do very well for, um, the detective tale it's trying to, to, to say or it's trying to portray. I was reading that Ryan Johnson was really inspired by the books written by Dashiell Hammett, uh, one of which was the Maltese Falcon, which was something I picked up a couple years back. So I was like, Oh crap. Like this is, this is clearly like inspired from those tales because of the style that it's shown in, which it does not modern day. Nobody talks like the way that they're speaking in this movie. Um, but it's, it's a stylistic choice and it, and it worked well once I knew what was going on. Brandon. Yeah, this is a weird movie. Um, and Brian Johnson's kind of in the business of making movies that you think are one thing and then become an entirely different thing, which I wish I had known when I was watching the last Jedi, which is a movie that I truly love, but I, that, it makes all the more sense for that movie now, uh, between Looper and Knives Out and what he does with this. And with Brick specifically, you know, this is, you know, when we started the series about talking about directorial debuts, this is kind of like what I had in mind. Like someone, you know, coming out of film school, they scrap together money, they have this weird off-kilter concept. Some actor who is, you know, coming up or has done these, you know, smaller things comes on board because he finds it interesting, and then it blows up in its place. And that's kind of what this is. Like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is kind of great in this. He makes for a really good, you know, kind of Rock Hudson slash, you know, Tyrone Power-esque, you know, 40s-style detective Albeit, you know, sign dial, sing lines of dialogue, like you better not give me detention, you know, copper to the principal or something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but you, you know, the idea behind it. I also love that, like Richard Roundtree, who played Shaft in the original Shaft movies is the principal in this. Like it's bringing that whole, you know, that idea of the detective genre full circle into all of it. Uh, Nathan Johnson, his brother does the score for this. And it's, you know, really interesting between, you know, kind of the mix of, you know, horn sections and tack pianos. And that's kind of the music, that's kind of the score nerd and coming out. But again, I completely agree with you, Noah. There's there's a point in this movie where you're wondering, why is this so dark and so gloomy and so like kind of its own head for the most of the time? And then you realize what the what the shtick of the movie is. And that is where we'll either make or break the movie for someone watching it, at least in my eyes. For me, I find the balance of it fascinating. I find the story mostly engrossing. Uh, Lucas Haas is great as the pin, as the drug dealer. I just found some of the motives behind it a little bit weird. Like Megan Good's character, where she kind of plays the whole thing, is kind of looked ambiguous. Although it is cool seeing her pop up, you know, all those years ago. But yeah, at the end of the day, like for as weird as it is, I'm grateful that it exists, and it's a, it is a good template for like what Ryan Johnson would do next. So I was really impressed by it. I felt like I wouldn't have been surprised if this was Joseph Gordon-Levitt's debut, because. I didn't feel like his character gave me more than that detective kind of style. But that's I don't know kind how of we... the point. Yeah? Okay. Because... Like, kind of the point is that the movie makes him... And I don't know if I'll include this or not, but like... But like, I think kind of the point is that the movie makes him feel more important than he actually is. Like, this is a kid yeah. who is, you know... Like, this is a kid who is a slacker who, we, for all we know, is, like, getting the worst grades in school. Like, nobody likes him except for, like, the brain, his, like, nerdy friend. And then he has to then, you know, take on the case of, you know, all of his favorite movies. Like, it's kind of that framing of it. And that's how I took it, too. I took it as this kid just kind of got forced into circumstances for his friend. And then it's just like, oh, shoot, I guess I got to figure out why my friend's missing. Like they're very serious circumstances. And this kid looks like he could barely put himself together for work. And so <laughs> like, it's just, it's small stuff like that, that that's what makes him from just from my perspective, like an interesting protagonist to kind of see him struggle through that. 
And then it's funny because when you look at the influence for this, it's the reason why I wish we had talked about this a couple weeks earlier, because one of the influences for this that Ryan Johnson talks about is Cowboy Bebop, which I wish we had talked about when we were talking about the live action show, because Rip when you look at when you look at the par- hey, don't you go into that. When you look <laughs> at the parallels between like Spike and Brendan as characters, they're not all that far off. Like their wardrobes are kind of similar aesthetics, their fighting styles when there are fight scenes are very, you know, they're not like as flashy as Cowboy Bebop, but they are there. So like it's an interesting parallel of like yeah, Cowboy Bebop and like this low-key high school movie. That was a very nice way to put that they weren't flashy to say they weren't good. <laughs> I mean, they they were the 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 put in post sound effects were fun. Uh, but no, it's it's definitely a um it's a style. It's a style. It, it is the point that choice. You, tell, you can tell that Joseph Gordon-Levitt has not done the Dark Knight movies yet. He's not an action star. Right, right. We'll get there. It's someday, Joseph Gordon Levitt. <laughs> I liked what you I like what you both added, so I'm ready for ratings when you both are. Uh I'll start. Uh I'll start with my rating. This is it's interesting because I don't want to overly praise it because it's not that special. Like I don't want the shtick to get a hold of itself really. Uh I'll go with a solid seven. Like this is a really solid start for Ryan Johnson for a director who I think would go on to make far better movies. Like I think Looper is fantastic, Last Jedi and Knives Out and this is a really interesting start. It's, again, a great template for what he can do. It's a great kind of showcase for Justin Gordon-Levitt in a certain sense of the word, uh, but really it comes down to the writing. Like, the writing of this will make or break the movie for you. I think it's a fascinating exploration of the high school drama trope and the, you know, noir-style detective story based in very clearly its influences. But you know what? For what it is, it's a fascinating experiment, and I'm glad it exists. It's funny that you said that, because my exact thought was a seven as well. <laughs> I don't mean to echo into the void, but my, I feel like our feelings are pretty much the same for the movie. So um, it's only fitting that I also uh, claim a seven as well. <laughs> well, I'm less confident in my seven. So I'm going to go six and a half. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. That's fair. It's totally that's fair. my take. <laughs> and the uh, movie is, and the movie is streaming for free on Tubi. If you have access to that is also available on VOD services, wherever that is available. Uh, that being said, we're going to wrap up episode 16 of Plot Device for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Listening, while we've got you here, do us a quick favor. Go follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices. That's Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices. And our link tree, if you want to follow all of our accounts, whether it's Odyssey or the show or everything otherwise, uh, go to our Twitter and Instagram accounts at uh, Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Check us out there. You'll find links to all of our, you know, podcast links and article links and everything up there as follows. I want to thank our panelists for today. Uh, first of all, Noah Guzman, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can the people find you and what do you got going on in your life? People can find me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Um, what do I have going on right now? Honestly, listeners, I recently got a job that I'm pouring all my hours into, so not so much time Woo-hoo! heading to the movies. Congrats. But that doesn't mean that I won't keep myself busy with uh, No Way Home coming out next week, along with, uh, you know, watching Don't Look Up. And we have Nightmare Alley to talk about next week as well. So I'll be I'll be staying busy, but no reviews on the horizon just yet. I also want to thank our other co-hosts for today, Samantha Gorovaya. Sam, uh, you also have a bit of an announcement to make, but as well as that, uh, where can the people find you online? And uh, yeah, I guess going into that, what have you got going on? Because it's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, yeah, so it just uh, the announcement that Brandon's teasing, guys. So I am announcing that the the next episode is a 17 already. Jeez. Um, 17 will actually be my last episode um, for an undetermined amount of time because I, I can imagine coming back, but it'll be my last episode for um, 
with plot devices for a while. And so I, it makes me really sad because it's something that I absolutely loved being part of, especially with these two guys, they're amazing. And so I, I just felt bad because with my other personal time commitments, things were just getting too busy for myself. And I, I felt myself not giving like a hundred percent for the podcast all the time. And that it wasn't because there was a lack of effort. It's because there was a lack of time for me. And so I just felt bad because then something had to give. And unfortunately I, I had to make a hard decision to choose this, but that's why I'm hoping in the future, if I'm lucky enough, these guys could have me on for other random special episodes here and there. I just I, I wouldn't be able to commit to a full time host uh, like I have been in in the last couple months, and so um, I I fully know that in capable uh, capable hands though Brandon and Noah will do such a fantastic job, and I'm going to keep listening. So um, that is the big announcement, the big bomb drop there. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much just for having me and listening to me too. Um, but then otherwise, you know, you could still follow me. I'm still doing like the written reviews with Odyssey Online, so that's something I'm still doing at least. Uh, you can still find me at the usual social handles instagram it's at sam i am 520 and it is uh, s underscore inquiria for twitter um and so next week we have like noah teased uh, nightmare alley is coming up and that's something that i saw and reviewed so uh stay tuned for all those things to come you are essentially leaving the inmates to run the asylum i hope you know that um, <laughs> but no, no, I, no have more faith in yourselves no i think it's going to be awesome because i think the show could also really benefit from having a duo co-host if that makes any sense i think like having two heads is really cool um and sometimes with three i feel like with me it was clustered <laughs> but but no um i'm i'm just happy to see what you two do in all seriousness thank you for everything you have done and you are you are welcome literally anytime that you want to come back we love you sam i gotta include my voice somewhere in here or us listeners go oh my god no i didn't like sam oh. <laughs> I love you, Sam. Uh, it's been so great to have you on this pod. And yeah, open seat whenever you're coming back. We'll plug your reviews when we can. And yeah, we'll miss you. No, I appreciate it, guys. Don't make me cry too hard. <laughs> Onto my shameless plugs. I was uh, going to say, Brandon, where, where, where can people find you? Onto my shameless plugs. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Uh, my reviews, you can check out my latest review for Encounter, again, that we mentioned today on the podcast over at ASU Odyssey. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. I might be talking about it. We'll see. Uh, there's more Spider-Man content coming this way. Uh, you can check out our special uh, where we're ranking all of the Spider-Man movies. Uh, that'll be our mini sub that's coming out, I believe, in the next day or so. So check that out as you're listening to this as well. And again, Plot Devices at uh, Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. Go to uh, ctickets.us.com. Uh, my band, uh, Killbox, are playing at Rebel Lounge with uh, Practically People, Natural Flavors, and Weapon of Pride. Again, tickets are on sale now. We'd love for you guys to come out and support it. Again, Rebel Lounge in Phoenix, December 28th, if you can make it. Uh, ctickets.us.com is the address for that. With that being said, uh, that'll do it for today's episode of Plot Devices. Tune in for, again, our Spider-Man special just very soon. For myself, for Samantha Corvaya, for Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye.